0: Well, tonight we return once again to the book of Jude. We will not finish before my vacation, but we're looking at Jude 14 through 16 tonight, three verses. As we turn there, I was reminded of something that was said the year I was set to move to Myrtle Beach. who was at the General Assembly that year. A speaker who has graced our pulpit got up and spoke about a particular a topic that was being debated in that time and whether or not we should approve a change to our bylaws or our book of order in the PCA. And he described the PCA in this way. He says, we have a big tent. But then he said, but the winds of culture are blowing against that tent in in an attempt to either open it wider or blow it down. And then he told us what we should do. I'm not going to tell you what we should do. I'm going to say that at the end. What should we do about that situation? Hold that thought. But one of the things that I think is evident is judgment is never really a popular topic today. Today, it's not only an unpopular topic. For many, it's a taboo topic. In fact, there are those who say if we speak about judgment judgment on any way of life, or any lifestyle, or anything we call sin, they might even tell us things like, that is violence. How dare you say such a thing? But the problem is, it's not just in our culture, it's bled over into our churches. Our churches don't like to talk about sin, they don't like to talk about judgment, they don't like to talk about the fact that certain lifestyles, certain sins... Certain ways in which we live in this world are rebelling against God and deserve eternal punishment. But Jude doesn't mince words, does he? He's been talking about false teachers. He's been talking about how they creep into the church unnoticed. We've dwelt upon particularly the sins of immorality and greed and also the rebellion against authority. We looked last week at the last couple of verses that described six metaphors that describe these false teachers and how their effects on the church are terrible, yet they themselves will come to nothing. We come tonight to a prophecy about what will happen to these false teachers and their followers. Follow along as I read verses 14 through 16. Jude writes, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied showing favoritism to gain advantage as we read these words of prophecy and judgment let us bow briefly and ask the lord for help to understand it let's bow in prayer father these are your words they are the ones by your spirit that we are looking at tonight we pray that you will help us to have ears to hear them and hearts to understand them And, Lord, that by your Spirit we might apply these things to our hearts and lives, that we believe you according to the faith that you have given us in Christ and according to the grace that you give us to hear and understand. Lord, I pray that anything spoken this evening that is not consistent with your own would pass away and never be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. Eleven years ago, in 2012, there was an article by Albert Moeller about another teacher in the church who was having the opportunity to appear on national television in an interview. Now, this wasn't the main topic of this interview, but in this particular conversation, the interview turned to the topic that has been addressed in the book of Jude on homosexuality. And here's what the article says. I'm going to edit out the names, but you might even be able to guess who some of them are. The reporter shifted the topic to homosexuality as would be expected, and she said, almost every time we have a pastor on, it's a conversation we have. This reporter then said, when you say homosexuality is a sin, and there's a bunch of people who clearly are gay in your church, you're calling them sinners. I mean, that's the opposite of uplifting, I would think. She established the perfect platform for him to respond with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he did not. Well, I don't necessarily focus, this is the preacher, on that. I only talk about that in interviews. So this pastor only talked about sin on television interviews, and then only when forced to do so, he then attempted to broaden the talk of sin to being critical and even being negative. He tried to explain that he tries to avoid such issues intentionally. I think part of my, if you want to call it success, I've stayed in my lane, and my lane is listing people's spirits, and there are issues that are good Bible-believing people see on both sides of the fence. So, good Bible-believing people are found on both sides of the fence when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, this pastor said. His intention is clearly to straddle the fence. He affirmed previously that homosexuality is not God's best for humanity. Even then, the words had to be put into his mouth by others, including a major homosexual activist also on the program. Pressed again by this reporter, he repeated, First of all, in my services, I don't cover all those issues that we talk about here. Later, he responded to another question by stating, And I don't understand all those issues, and so, you know, I try to stick to the issues that I do understand. I know this. I am for everybody. I'm not for pushing people. What's wrong with this person? This person is ordained to stand upon the truth of God. God's word, we saw earlier in the book of Jude, clearly speaks on this issue in all kinds of sexual immorality, not just homosexuality. It clearly says, according to the scriptures, that those who continue in this practice and refuse to repent, whether it's homosexuality, spiritual Uh, rebellion against God's ordained authority, whether it's other types of sexual immorality, whether it's idolatry or thievery or whatever it is, by refusing to repent from such sins, you will encounter eternal judgment. You are not able to inherit the kingdom of God if you are these particular sinful lifestyles and refuse to repent from them. You see, this is the, the mode of a false teacher today. Jude is addressing very clearly what happens to the ungodly. The ungodly, of course, including all those things that were mentioned. What happens to the ungodly who refuses to repent and be forgiven of their sins? It's fairly clear, isn't it? Judgment. But perhaps even more apt to this particular context... What happens to the teacher who fails to teach this truth in the church? That's what Jude is talking about here. And he says, in this case, there is certain judgment of the ungodly. And secondly, he reminds us in verse 16 of a summary look at the ungodly. And we may be surprised about where the first things mentioned about these false teachers go. First of all, however, a certain judgment of the ungodly. It kind of tells us from a strange place. He says it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now, we don't really know much about Enoch, do we? In Genesis, we read about Enoch that he was the descendant in the the sixth generation after Adam, or as it says here, the seventh from Adam, Adam being the first, Enoch being the seventh. And it says here that he walked with God and was no more, for God had taken him. That's all all it says in Genesis about Enoch in that genealogy. We come to the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews tells us that Enoch was a part of the Hall of Fame of Faith but we never get in scripture the actual prophecy that is quoted here. So this ancient fact of coming judgment from Enoch, one of the oldest prophecies that perhaps Jude could refer to, remember these are the early days before the flood, before all this had taken place in the judgment on the earth with Noah and all those things. This is is just the seventh generation of human beings on the planet. And so he's saying this is nothing new. It's always been God's purpose and design that those who refuse to repent of their sins will face judgment. So who was Enoch? Enoch, it tells us, walked with God. He was a man of faith. That's all we know about him. Why then should Jude use Enoch? In fact, if you have studied the book of Jude, you know that this is one of those rare occasions that there's been a quotation from one of the apocryphal books, the book of Enoch. In fact, the church has recognized that this particular book, amongst all the other apocryphal books, are not actually the word of God. In fact, it's one that was rejected to be part of the canon of scriptures, that is, the acceptable books and scriptures that we believe were inspired by the Holy Spirit and are the very word of God. So why is Jude quoting from the book of Enoch? Now, it's interesting, John Calvin in his day, he got to the idea, he said, I don't think it's really quoting from the book of Enoch, he's just been given inspired prophecy by the Holy Spirit. However, I disagree with John Calvin on that particular idea because if you actually look at the words from the book of Enoch and the verse that is quoted here, you understand it It really looks like a quote from that particular book. Now, others will say that one of the reasons why this quote was in there is because if you combine the other scriptures that address these particular points, you find all of these in scripture that are in this quote. And there you have uh, some of your quotes in the bulletin, for example, it says in Deuteronomy 33, 2, Moses said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Isaiah 66, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. And finally, from Malachi 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? Now, of course, if you combine all three of those scripture passages, you understand it covers this prophecy. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So, yes, it is from scripture. But it's interesting. What should we think? about first Enoch this is one of those times where a pastor gets to talk about a topic that sometimes people will ask him that maybe isn't necessarily addressed clearly in scripture in a a point where we can say okay here's the passage that tells us these are the books you should include in the canon so there have historically been three options even from the time of the early church what do we do about Enoch and Jude some would say well because the book of Enoch we don't consider to be the word of God, then we should not consider Jude to be a part of the Word of God, and for that reason, Jude was one of the last letters uh, to be accepted into the Canon as the Word of God. But some would also say, well, because Jude, it quotes from this particular book, maybe we should consider the Book of Enoch to be the Word of God and include it in our canon. But what prevailed, and I think is the proper response, is this. These were the words or the idea from Augustine. He said this. He said, in the place where Jude quotes it, it is accurate. In the place where he quotes it, he commends it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be a portion of that letter, which is actually the word of God. This is where I fall. I don't think the book of Enoch and I think as you read the book of Enoch and you read it and you understand it and you look at it, you understand it as different from other scriptures and therefore it looks as if it is not in particular a part of the word of God. Yet in this place, for this example, because of the circumstances and because of the wonder and interest of the Jewish people, the Jewish believers from time immemorial because of the words about Enoch, And because of how he walked with God and did not experience death, according to Hebrews 11, they had this fascination with him. And so what they're doing is they're using, uh, Jude is using this particular author, Enoch, as a prophet, who likely said something very similar to this or a direct quote in this measure. And he uses this to address those who would point to this book for experience. Or for truth. In other words, he's turning upon them some things they would point to, perhaps for understanding, as judgment on the matter. But the fact of the matter is, it is ancient. It's not new. It is something that has been going on for decade after decade, century after century. It has always been God's intention to bring judgment on the ungodly. And listen to this type of judgment. It is with awesome power. Look at what he says. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now it's interesting, this idea of ten thousands is from where we get the English word myriad. Myriads of holy ones. That's a lot. A lot of holy ones. Now what does he mean by holy ones? Again, there's a distinction. There are some who say holy ones includes maybe both angels and God's saints. It doesn't tell us right here. It doesn't use the Greek word for angels here. And yet we understand from Scripture in various places that God does include angels to execute his judgment on people. In fact, if you didn't know that, perhaps we can look at a few places in Scripture. God's awesome power of coming judgment with the myriads of angels were prophesied by none other than Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 13 verses 41 and 42, Jesus prophesied these particular words about the judgment to come. He says this, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice the angels are not doing the judging. The angels are sent by God to gather up those who have been judged that they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. Jesus said angels will be involved in that process. In case that's not good enough for you, the Apostle Paul also tells us these things. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 prophesy about the judgment to come in this way. He says this, He says, since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, when the judgment comes and the sheep go to heaven and the goats go to hell, then the angels will be accompanying Jesus on that particular judgment day. And again, if you didn't have enough with Jesus, you didn't have enough with Paul, perhaps you might adhere to the words of John in Revelation 16. I'm not going to read the entire chapter in Revelation 16, but even if you think it is figurative or literal in different senses, you understand this is the chapter describing the bowls of God's wrath. And when God's wrath was pulled out, an angel poured out each bowl. The angel or angelic involvement in the coming judgment. You see, God will use all of the power at his disposal to bring the world unto judgment. Judgment the wicked to eternal punishment, and the righteous to eternal life. It's an awesome power. But perhaps the thing that is most important for this particular context is this. All the ungodly. It's all-inclusive. It's an all-inclusiveness of coming judgment. It's all the ungodly. It's not those that were really bad, and had this much ungodly behavior, it's also those who had a little bit of ungodly behavior according to the standards of the world. It's not just those who committed one type of sin, it's anyone who committed any type of ungodly behavior. It's interesting, you might notice four times the word or a word, Uh, from the word family ungodly is used it's kind of a bizarre prophecy It's, it's one of those things that repeats the same thing over and over again in case you don't get the idea to execute judgment and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him you get the message Ungodly, 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 ungodly. What is to be ungodly? That is to be those who act in such a way as to oppose God's standards of holiness. And notice this all-inclusiveness of coming judgment is upon ungodly actions. Those who would do things that are ungodly. But it also comes upon harsh speech. That is against God. To be ungodly is to be someone who rebels against God. The idea of ungodly means that it's not godly. It is not something that follows God's character and God's ways. So they are rebels. They not only do things, but they also speak things harshly against God. How important is this for the context of false teachers? It's not just those that they have tempted and gotten to participate in their wickedness. It's also as a result of their ungodly speaking that is against the word of God. Have you ever met someone who believes he's above judgment somehow? You ever met someone who thinks that because they are more enlightened than everyone else, they will not face the coming judgment? Or maybe it's someone who thinks he's smarter than everybody else or more intelligent. And he thinks because of that, I won't receive the same judgment as everyone else. Or maybe it's someone who thinks they're more useful, they're more talented, they're more gifted. And so they think that they're above the law or maybe in the context of the church, as someone who has more of the spirit in them. They're more spiritual than anyone else. I've met people both inside and outside the church who have told me, I am more spiritual than you are. And the idea here is, There's another plane, there's another level of humanity and I've attained it somehow. Even if it's not something of my own effort, somehow I'm up here on another plane and another level and I won't be judged the way everybody else is judged. But what does Jude say? No one will escape the judgment. And Jude says not only do we know that no one will escape the judgment, this is something that's never changed in the history of the world. From the days clear back in Enoch before the flood, this was always the case. The ungodly will be judged by God in awesome power with angels at his disposal. So again, where does this judgment fall? Verse 16 places us once again in the category where he says these In this context, he's talked about these in verse 8. He talked about these dreamers. In other words, these who experience things, and because of their experience of dreams or visions or other things, teaching, false teaching to the church, he now talks about the kind of behavior they have. These false teachers. They're grumblers and discontents or malcontents, as our scripture says. This is unexpected, isn't it? In fact, you might say the word grumblers is the word murmurers. Try to spell that. It has two U's in it. Murmurers and discontents. One of the commentary writers on this says these are grumblers, backbiters, pointing out all the deficiencies in church. They point out the fact that the worship isn't good good enough, the facilities aren't good enough, The the Bible studies aren't good enough. The preaching's not good enough. The music's not good enough. And they're always looking for ways to point out all the deficiencies of the church. They might even be right. And we might have to tell them at some point, if you want a perfect church, don't come to ours. These fault finders stir up dissent as they whisper and grumble to others and pass it on. That's what's described here. Those malcontents and grumblers who are often complaining about the church and giving all their ideas about how all the things wrong about the church are described here and they're never content with what is taking place. They grumble, they murmur. And they lead others, stirring up dissent as they whisper and grumble to others. This is what false teachers do. They come in and they try to upset the apple cart. They say true things. They may even uh, wrap it in theological truth and words of grace. And yet, behind the scenes, what are they doing? They're, they're pointing out all the problems with what you have. And, and it might even be something that's not so bad. It might not be something sinful. It's just something they don't like. And so then they begin to create division and dissension within the church, and the false teacher then grasps hold of the congregation because now they have a following, those that agree with them about the bad things going on in the church. But it says, what are they really doing? They're following their own sinful lusts or desires. Perhaps they're teaching this. God wants me to be happy. How many times have you heard that? There's often someone who's married and sees someone that they like to be around and they're attracted to. They're unhappy in their own marriage. And so they go to the pastor and they say, I think I've found my soulmate. The problem is that soulmate is not their own spouse. And they say to the pastor, they say, I found my soulmate. We have the same likes and all those other things, and I just know that God is calling me to go with this person because God wants me to be happy. Doesn't this sound like the world around us? Do whatever you want that makes you happy. But the false teacher is following his own sinful desires because he wants to be happy in the pleasures of sin. And so he tells the church, come with me. This sin is not so bad as long as you are happy and I will build you up and uplift you in your happiness like those who would refuse to take a stand on issues in the press. What is he doing in the end? He's seeking to gain power for himself and be the master, either through the grumbling and the murmuring and the discontent that gives him a falling or the understanding that he's pushing for others to experience happiness and the pleasures of sin because he's above judgment as a righteous and spiritual person, self-righteous. Then he knows that he can't be judged for being happy after all. And so then he teaches that to the people as time permits and as he gains power within the church. And pretty soon the whole church is following the ways of being happy. But then we see what really happens. They're loud mouthed boasters. They have boastful mouths. They're always about themselves. It's always about their programs, their efforts, their numeric growth, their ways to reach the world, their ways to experience the wonderful measures and blessings of the church because of their efforts. It becomes about themselves, not about God's word, not about God's truth, not about the spirit who empowers us to live transformed lives. They have boastful mouths, but perhaps... The most telling is this, they show favoritism to gain advantage, this idea of marveling or thinking that they can, because they show favoritism, perhaps they're looking to be paid for their efforts so those who can afford to give them gifts they will give special attention to or important teaching to. Or perhaps those who would gain influence or power for them in the church they would pay special attention to. And they show favoritism. Why? For the sake of gain. One place in scripture the old old King James Version would say for filthy lucre. Here they're trying to gain benefits of money, power, influence. This is the ungodly. Remember, he's not talking about a politician out there. He's not talking about an activist who's out there to promote an evil agenda. He's talking about teachers within the church who are ungodly and false teachers looking to lead the sheep astray. And this summary look at the ungodly begins with murmuring and discontent, following his own desires, boasting about himself, and in the end, all about gaining. But what do we do about it? We remind ourselves that judgment comes on all. For those who have repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus Christ, and therefore their works express their obedience to the faith, we see that these individuals, as far as we can tell, we don't know their hearts, but as far as we can tell, they will experience the wonderful grace of God and enter the kingdom by God's grace, not by their efforts. But even those teachers in the church, if they exhibit this ungodly behavior, refuse to repent from their sins and sinful lifestyles, then it doesn't matter how smart they are, how enlightened they may be, how useful it seems they have been for the kingdom, they too will be judged and thrown in the fiery Well, do you remember the question I asked before reading the passage? Somebody said, we have a big tent, but the winds of culture are blowing against that tent in an attempt to either open it wider or blow it down. What do we do? Well, if you've ever camped and you know the wind is blowing, what do you want to do? You want to put in another stake. You want to put in that extra stake so that the wind will not blow the tent down or influence the tent in such a way that it's uninhabitable. This is what we must do in the church. Again and again, we turn back to the word of God, whether it's way back to the words of Enoch that Jude expresses here in this passage, or whether it's to the words of Jesus or the words of Paul or the words of John or the words of James or whoever it is in the scriptures, we always go back to the scriptures to see if what these false teachers are teaching is true, to see if even the good teachers that we admire and look up to, to see if what they're teaching is true. We look at their lifestyles to see if the fruit of their lives exhibits the teaching that they profess to believe. You see, preaching on judgment is crucial for a faithful church. Avoiding this topic makes us less able to withstand the attacks of the evil one and false teachers. Jude is reminding us all with all the descriptions and the metaphors and the strange language and the weird quotations and all these things that appear in the book of, Job, of Jude. He's reminding us here judgment is coming. But in the light of all this, He's going to tell us at the end of the letter to persevere. Let's pray. Father, give us the ability by your spirit to put another stake in the ground. That we might withstand the winds of evil that are blowing on the church. That we might withstand those who would creep into the church, perhaps even unnoticed because they look so good. They say things that seem to sound so good. They seem to have the best interests of others at heart, only that they would be exposed to be unbelievers, looking out for their own interests, self-righteous, even speaking harshly against you. Lord, help us to be discerning. Help us, Lord, to persevere. Help us, Father, to trust in you and your word alone. In Jesus' name.